0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: In, in our pursuit of scale, we're losing our sense of humanity because of what you read that I wrote. And it's, it's hard to find yourself when you're distanced from others. And th- what we end up doing as entrepreneurs, as founders, as CEOs, w- really in, in any job, I could, I, this would apply. And that is we grow, we scale, the top line growth is big, the profits are big. And what we find, we, we, we turn around and one day we realize that we have lost the thing that brought us to this place to begin with. We have become untethered to our vocation. Because we've become busy managing and writing checks and delegating. And pretty soon, we've lost the human scale of our business that drew us to it in the first place. Whatever it may be, practicing law, writing, making chocolate, it doesn't matter. It all, It's all it, – it, the, the application is the same for all of those. And so what I'm suggesting is that people take a step back, take a deep breath and say, wait, what? I see the attraction here, but do I need to do this? And if I do this – How can I have a daily practice of reverse scale? That is, how can I turn this pyramid upside down and say, does this idea, this good idea, can I say that this has value if it only impacts one person? Or what if it just impacts me? Is it still worthy? Can I ascribe value to that? And in the process, am I practicing reverse scale? That is, am I practicing holding on to this line, this tether, to the thing that brought me here to begin with, and is it worth sacrificing some growth and scale in order to keep it? And I say yes.
0: Sean, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, so I actually was uh, introduced to you by multiple sources. I came across your work on Seth Godin's blog, and then coincidentally someone from your team wrote in and told me about the work that you're up to. And anybody who sends chocolate with their book is somebody <laughs> I've become an instant fan of. I, I, yeah, I remember think, it, it somehow worked out really nice. I was like, I'm really craving something sweet. I was like, oh, yeah. I got some chocolate (laughs) with that book today. I'm going to eat it, uh, which was delicious, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. So I want
0: to start with a question that I I don't believe that I've started with before. And I've gathered that faith plays a a really major role in your life from having read the book. And I wanted to ask about what the spiritual or religious background of your childhood was.
1: (sighs) The uh, my my dad uh, grew up um, a Jew in New York City. My grandfather um, was from Russia. My grandmother from Hungary her relatives all died in the Holocaust. My mother was a Southern Baptist farm girl. So, of course, I was raised Episcopalian. And um, and but the uh, the religious background was was quite uh, dominant um, growing up because when my dad was about 46 years old, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. I was 12 and he died when I was 14. And this kind of weird thing happened um, in our Episcopal church, and that is there was this prayer group that would come over to our house when my dad was sick, and they would lay hands on him and say that he was going to be healed, and they spoke in tongues, which really freaked me out. And they were a little bit mean. In other words, they kind of yelled their claim of healing, and it sort of scared me, but the leader of the group told me to never speak of death with my dad they said if I ever did that, that it would be a sign of doubt and that he wouldn't be healed of his cancer. So every time my dad tried to bring it up, I'd push him away and say, you know, Dad, don't say that. You won't live. And uh, he kept getting sicker. He was a lawyer uh, like me. And, and he was in court the week before he died on a trial. And I was with him when he died at home. And it was the most desperate moment of my life just begging God out loud to please not let him die and just let him live, and, and he didn't. And then this, the two leaders from the prayer group were over were a couple hours after my dad died. His body was still upstairs in their bedroom, and they brought me upstairs, these two ladies, and they actually tried to raise him from the dead. And they said that he didn't want to come back that he liked it better where he was. So, that was my religious um, imprint, if you will, uh, growing up as a teenager and as a young person.
0: Wow. Uh, And yet, as I said, from reading the book, I got the sense that there is a tremendous amount of faith that plays a role in your life. So, how in the world did that happen Uh, despite the fact that you experienced what you just did?
1: When uh, I was, I practiced criminal defense law for 20 years before I started this chocolate factory. And um, I, I spent about 25 years after my dad's death, just accomplishing every single thing that I could. Any mountain that was in front of me was there to climb. And I did all the things I could do, won all the cases, made the money. And I just felt as if there might be something more, there could be something else, and that perhaps there was another vocation waiting for me, and the vocation that I'd had for the previous 20 years was about to be shed. I, I just didn't know. I was, I was clueless in how to pursue the, the next thing. But I read this book, Tuesdays with Maury, which I encourage anyone to read, and I would say even though Mori was a self-described religious mutt, Buddhist, Jewish. And I believe that God spoke to me through that book. Uh, I think that God can speak to us through anything. And I think that happened through that book. And it, that book, oddly enough, reinvigorated my faith. And um, from that point on, I decided that I would go to a nearby monastery called Assumption Abbey, which is a Trappist monastery about an hour and a half from my house. And it's the place that my father spent his last night before he died. He was on a men's church retreat with some of his friends at this monastery. And I decided to go visit that place. I've been visiting it now for 18 years as a guest at first, just going there um, to be alone and in solitude. And over time, my faith began to really take on, um, a feeling of reality to me. And, um, as I was going through this difficult time of figuring out what to do next. And then about four or five years ago, I took the step of becoming a family brother. I'm not a monk. (laughs) Um, but when I'm there, with the monks, I live with them uh, behind what's called the cloister. I don't. I follow their schedule. I wake up for the first prayer service at three fifteen in the morning, and I work with them in, in what is called ora uh, et labora, the balance of work and prayer. And that's what I do. And that has become a real center point in my life. So faith is, I would say, the the center of my life, and the things that surround it are hopefully informed by that.
0: Wow. Uh, You know, I remember reading the part about losing your father and the question that raised for me is what impact uh, has that ended up having on the kind of father you've been to your children?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Um, Well, as I mentioned, my dad was, he was he was really a hero to me and was a source of comfort to me growing up and i really looked up to him and and i think that while i tried to be that way to my kids i think more than anything that the experience of his sickness and death so overshadowed a lot of my memories of our time together, what I've tried to do, and I should say this as an aspiration, not as a conclusion of fact, but I've tried to let that experience, um, I've tried to let that experience be one where I can learn from that and express compassion to others, including my children. And so... I think that uh, above anything else, that experience in my dad has given me an opportunity to to express compassion to my family and other people.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you're a criminal defense attorney, which I knew, and I remember reading some of the stories uh, about the people that you defended, and I wondered if there was ever moments where there's a conflict between your faith and the people you were defending given the things that they were being accused of
1: the, the work my work as a criminal defense lawyer was really my I should say my reputation was built in the defense of murder cases mainly because they were high profile on court TV and and back in the days when court TV had money um, to cover trials and um, so that that was really how I was known. Um, and I defended all kinds of cases, you know, everybody from accused drug dealers to people charged with very serious assault crimes or embezzlement, white collar crime cases, tax fraud, bank fraud, and then, of course, people accused of murder. And I would say that my faith, the intersection of my faith and my work um, never created a conflict for me. Um, And I think the reason is because even during those years when my faith um, seemed distant, um, really distant in my life, I still I still prayed. And I prayed for justice and mercy, even though, of course, I was defending people. uh, That's what I wanted. I wanted the outcome to be one. Of justice tempered with mercy. And I, I never uh, allowed myself to be put in an ethical, a compromising ethical position. I just didn't. I, I, I fully understood the rules of ethics and I was very careful about um, knowing where that line was. But Um, There were times, you know, when judges threatened to throw me in jail and and I've had many, many conflicts with prosecutors and judges and witnesses. But I never felt as if they that any of those situations uh, put me in conflict uh, with my faith. I I just was careful to never let anything go down that path. I was protective of it. Mm. So.
0: I have to ask you uh, about your views on our entire criminal justice system and the prison industrial complex. And the reason this is fresh on my mind, I think it's almost serendipitous that we're having this conversation because I was watching a documentary last night about uh, the American prison system and how it really apparently is biased to favor the people who might be rich and guilty and definitely punish people who are innocent and poor uh you may have seen it jay-z produced this documentary about a a young kid named Khalif browder who was accused of stealing a backpack put in rikers for three years and finally let go with no explanation and of course he ended up committing suicide because they had put him in solitary confinement for three years and you having been so up close and personal to this what are your views on all of this
1: this is, this, our current system, our current criminal justice system um, is in a sad state of affairs. And, and candidly, it's been that way for decades. And what you said is true. I've seen, I've, I've worked with public defenders, federal public defenders and state public defenders all over the country. Um, in some states, it's better than it is in others. But there's absolutely no question that um, those people who are poor um, are going to end up with a, a worse outcome than if, that in, than if they had the resources to hire a private criminal defense lawyer. And um, not to mention the fact that the, the laws are even written in such a way that um, those of color will be um, treated differently when it comes to sentencing and will spend longer times in jail and so it's the system is broken, all the way around. So it's broken when it comes to uh, the right to counsel and those lawyers that are available to uh, people who can't afford a lawyer, who have a constitutional right to a lawyer. So so preparation to trial, trial, that's broken. The appellate system as it relates to people in poverty is broken. And of course, those people who are incarcerated, are, if they're poor, they're just going to be there longer, period. And I I mean, yes, I was a private criminal defense lawyer, but it it gave me the opportunity to see literally in courtrooms what was happening for people who didn't have money. Now, some of the lawyers were terrible, um, and even if they'd only had one client, they were still terrible lawyers. Uh, These are, in some cases, um, state public defenders who had absolutely no business defending these serious cases. And – I'm, I'm, the one case that really strikes me is I, I had this client who um, who I did not write about in the book, but um, his name was Armand Villasana. And the, the, he was – before before I got to him, he was represented by a state public defender. He was accused of rape, and he was given 70 years. And then the family gathered some money together and hired me for the appeal. And what was terrible is there was actually a lineup in that case – The victim, the woman, said that her accuser was Hispanic. How many Hispanic people do you think were in the lineup? One, him. Then, and, and yet it still went to trial. And that lineup identification wasn't thrown out. So finally, when I got it, the guy had been there in solitary confinement for two years said he didn't commit this rape, so I convinced the judge before sending him away for literally the rest of his life, I said, Judge, let me look at the evidence, let me re-examine the evidence, and have a private lab, a forensic lab, examine the clothing that the victim was wearing at the time of the rape, and examine the rape kit. Come to find out, the state forensic analyst had actually found an indicator to indicate the presence of semen And didn't give that to the prosecutor or to the defense lawyer. He just put it in a file cabinet, put it away. So I found it. I had the evidence reexamined. Meanwhile, the guy's still sitting in jail. And it turned out that that DNA on the clothing she was wearing, the DNA on the hospital sheet, and the DNA to the rape kit all matched each other and all weren't him. This guy didn't do it. And the prosecutor still fought me on it. So had the family not had the money to come hire me, he would have died in jail. And, the, and I got him out. He got out. And get this, get this. The prosecutor called me a few years ago and said, Sean, the FBI found a DNA profile match on that case where you defended Villasana. And the, they, they went and interviewed the man in prison somewhere in the central Midwest. And he said, yes, I did it. But it wasn't rape. It was consensual. Go ask her, the alleged woman victim of rape. She then said, when confronted, I made the story up because I didn't want to tell my husband about an affair. But yet the statute of limitations had run. And so she couldn't be charged with perjury. Can you believe that? So all of this happened. All of it happened because this guy didn't have money to hire a private criminal defense lawyer in his first trial. Otherwise, I believe that evidence would have been found and he would have been set free. How often it's does terrible. something like this happen? It happens every day. It happens every single day. And just your listeners could literally walk into their county courtroom in the felony courtrooms, and just literally, they could sit there for a day and watch it happen. The other thing, the other thing that happens is, the, even this even happens among private criminal defense lawyers who will take a very small amount of money for a really serious case because they're like they they say to themselves, "Well, I need money this month. I've got to make payroll, pay my secretaries and paralegals. So I'll take this case for practically nothing. Well, it would seem like a lot of money, but." They have no business in those serious cases. I saw in my own years of doing this for almost 20 years, even private criminal defense lawyers essentially sell their clients down the river for a plea bargain because they were afraid, literally afraid, to take the case to trial. And you think, well, wait, isn't that why you go to law school? Isn't that because so you can try cases and be in the courtroom? Well, it's a scary place to be especially as a defense lawyer and I saw I saw lawyer after lawyer make deals for clients who shouldn't have been in prison for as long as they were because why? Because in, often what we see is this the prosecutor and the defense lawyer, you know, they need to get along because of all the cases they have together, they need to get along with the judge. Everybody gets along. I didn't do that. I mean I wasn't friends with prosecutors. I didn't go have lunch with prosecutors. I didn't play golf with judge. I mean, I don't play golf, but I didn't play golf with judges or socialize with them because I I considered myself essentially in an adversary position to them. They were not my friends. And no wonder I could only do it for 20 years. Mm. I mean, this is this is a hard life when you even when you love it like I did, Mm. but it's an even harder life when you stop loving it like I did. So I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And it wasn't the death threats. I had people who wanted to kill me, um, legitimate death threats, but that wasn't what stopped me.
0: Hmm. What's our path out of this? I, I mean, I know people, uh, you know, there's a woman who had written the book called the new Jim Crow, which is next on my, on my list to read. Uh, if I remember correctly, her name is Michelle Williams, but it, what is the path out of this and how much money do we spend on this as a, as a, you know, as a country?
1: The first thing is a, is an education and realization among people of all political backgrounds that the dollars we spend early in life are going to give us a great return on investment later in life. And so until we understand spending money birth to age five and understand the investments that are required – Especially among those in poverty around this country at that level, we're never going to get this this cycle will it will continue not, no matter how much sentencing reform we have. We have to invest money early in order to do what we can to to lift these populations up out of poverty, getting education and not discriminating against them. In our sentencing laws now, from a practical standpoint, there. Just last week, you know, there's or this this week actually, there's this debate in Congress about whether or not reformers should sort of take a small bite of the apple, and that is um, vote in favor of sentencing reform as opposed to holding back and wanting the whole apple of criminal justice reform. Well. <laughs> I happen to be in the camp that sentencing reform is not enough. It isn't enough. It's good, but it isn't enough. And so we need to have a systemic criminal justice reform happen from top to bottom. And you know what? When I was in high school in the mid-70s, I was on the debate team. We literally debated this topic that you and I are talking about right now. Now, you know the other topic that we debated? National health care. So we we've been talking about this stuff for decades, and I don't see light at the end of the tunnel right now. I I really don't. And especially I don't want to get unless you want to get political about sure. what, what the current I mean the current um the current, uh, regime at the department of justice, they're not going to, they are not going to be advocates of this kind of reform, um, that we're talking about. It's, it's just not, I mean, I don't see it happening. I mean, when it costs more to incarcerate a person than it does to send them to Harvard Uh or fill in the blank university, something is really, really wrong with the system. And, uh, I, Until we do kind of what I was saying in the beginning of this chat, that we until we start investing younger, Mm -hmm. we're not we're it's this isn't going to change, it's not going to change.
0: Well, I I think that really makes a a perfect segue to talk about how you get from being a a criminal defense attorney to starting a chocolate company. That doesn't seem like the most logical sequence of steps. So, (laughs) what was it that finally caused you to break and decide you couldn't do it anymore, and how did that manifest in the form of a chocolate company?
3: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user
2: can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
3: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.
1: there was a murder trial that concluded and that I I talk a little bit about that in the book. And at the end of that case, my client, this woman, this very small woman uh, at the end of this murder trial, which I won, I I didn't even realize it at the time because I was still in battle mode right before closing argument. And we were in this little room and I was explaining to her what the judge just said, that we were going to win the case. And she said, Sean, it's over. And, the roles really switched dramatically between lawyer advocate and client where she became, in a sense, my protector. I, I, I became emotional, I started crying, and she held me. And I didn't know it at the time, but reflecting back on it over time, I realized that that was the moment when I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't. And so what I did is I I started to really say what is the next where's my next inspiration? I loved this for so long. Where's my next inspiration? I became desperate even about it and I had a prayer that I said every day, sometimes many times a day, which was dear God, please give me something else to do. <laughs> and that just kind of became my mantra in my prayer and I did this for 5 years looking, looking, looking. And the the more desperate I became, the further away it was. And I didn't have some lifelong love of chocolate, but what, here's what I did. And this is, I believe the key concept of, of, of the, of the bridge that literally appeared before me to get from law to chocolate. And here's what happened. I, I decided it was time to really have a conversation with the grief in my life, with my broken heart, over my father's death. And so what I did is I started volunteering in a local hospital's palliative care unit. Palliative care is just hospice in the hospital, essentially, people dying. And I volunteered on Fridays when I was in town. I did this for almost five years. And they would give me people to visit some in oncology, some cardiology, some neurology, but the people were in some state of dying and most of them had no visitors, you know, relatives or friends. And so I would just visit, I would just go into their room and talk to them, have simple conversations, sometimes read to them. And at the end of my visit, I said to them, I said, Hey, one of the things I do as a volunteer is I pray for people. Would you like me to say a prayer for you? And I found that 99% of people in palliative care will take a prayer. And I said, well, what would you like me to pray for? And this is the key because it was opposite of what happened to me as a teenager. I, I said, what would you like me to pray for? And they would say, would you pray that I live two more weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary? Or would you pray that I die today because I'm in such pain, I'm ready to go? Or would you pray for my family that they're okay after I die? And I would ask if I could touch their shoulder or their hand. And I would say their exact words back to them. And here's what happened. In those moments, measured in seconds, I actually thought about someone besides me. I'd been so wrapped up in what am I going to do and where's my next career and what am I going to invest my money and just all of that. And then what, some days when I left the hospital and I was walking to my car in the parking lot, it was as if my feet weren't on the ground. That they were like three or four feet above the ground, like I was walking on air to my car. What is that? It's joy. And so I, I quote Khalil Gibran and would bring him in now to, to say, he says, our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. I believe that with everything that I have, that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And so that's what was happening. When I'm walking out to the car and I'm walking on air, this is the expression of joy from the depth of my broken heart. And so this paradox of finding yourself when you lose yourself in service of others, as Gandhi says, happened to me. So I didn't even know it was happening at the time, but this service created a space for me to think about my future, not while I was at the hospital praying, but just during that time of my life. And so I encourage people, every chance I get to examine their own broken heartedness and to think about what joy can be born of that.
0: Wow. Uh, well, let's do this. I know that one of the things that really struck me about the way that you've chosen to build the company is that there's a, a great sense of generosity uh, to this I know you share profits with farmers uh, you donate school lunches where does that come from uh, is that something that that uh, was embedded early in your childhood or is that just something that's evolved with time
1: I think both you know I spent a lot of time in high school even in service projects, and I think a lot of this, both of my parents were very active in the community, my dad as a lawyer, my mom just as a community volunteer, and so I sort of grew up with that, and I think that um, over time, even in my law career, I worked on pro bono cases, I worked to achieve social justice, starting programs in my community. I started a grief center for children who've experienced the death of a parent or sibling uh, almost 20 years ago. I'm still very active in that. So this kind of life um, has really just, I think, been part of me. But when I started the business almost 13 years ago, it wasn't a question of, hey, do you think I should do some good in this business too, along with my chocolate bars? The... The way this company came about the doing good part has always been inseparable from the resulting product from the chocolate bar they're they're, they're they are literally intertwined together to such a point that they can't be separated and so i don't it's there was it's, so those questions were not um should we or should we not it was just it was just part of the business so when we're we're in we're a small business just 16 people and as you said we profit share with farmers I open my books to them I translate my financials into their language so in July when I'm back in Tanzania it'll be in Swahili um, we take I'll be taking local high school kids with me that's almost our tenth year of this chocolate university program we have a school lunch program um, in the Philippines and we just concluded one in Tanzania we've funded over a million in lunches in the villages near where we buy cocoa beans, all self-sustaining with no donations. And the thing of it is, these works, that is working directly with farmers, working with local students in Springfield, in our neighborhood, in our area, working with students in Tanzania, this, this is wrapped up in our vocation of making the best tasting direct trade chocolate that we can make. That's, it's, all, it's all together. And I don't even know what it would be like for them not to be together. So that's, I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah, yeah that's, that's the way we do it.
0: Yeah, you know, In the book, there's this quote that struck me. You said meaningful work is both internal and external. It's internal in that I have a sense of personal dignity during the workday because of who I am, not what I do. This is a daily practice, not an event. Meaningful work is external though, in that I hope To let the light of my dignity be a lamp for my fellow workers and shine collectively up on the work we decide to do together for good purposes. And the idea of this being a daily practice, I think, is what struck me. And the question was, how can we make this a daily practice in our own lives?
1: Well, the first way to make it a daily practice is to to want to do it. and to have this awareness that it can happen and it won't be perfect. It'll be, it will absolutely be imperfect and it will be, um, some, something we're stretching towards. But I think one of the things to do is to make it part of our morning intention for the day, uh, whether it's through meditation or prayer or both or, or simply journaling. And that's not simply, but I mean, journaling is I think an important way of stating our intentions for the morning. And, so that's the first thing, I think. The second thing is, is to not overcomplicate it and to understand that we, despite whatever our role may be in our workplace, whether it's the founder or the CEO or or the, or the salesperson or the chocolate maker or whatever, but we, when we consider our role, to understand that there are literally, there, there are two aspects to us. That is what, what we're thinking about what our mind is on, how we are, how we are um, thinking throughout the day. And so that is internal, but there's an expression of it. The expression of that light or that mindfulness is external that people can see, they can feel. And so if we are just aware of it, and we don't overcomplicate it. Then it natural. It it follows naturally. The other thing I think is important is to, is it's much more conducive in a workplace that has an, that has as a component, um peace that is a peaceful place of work, and and we that's something that I strive for here at our chocolate factory. So in, that means that sometimes we even turn away business, because I I value the the peacefulness, the, the lack of chaos as a place where this kind of practice that we're talking about, um, is, is, is it's not that it's, but it's more possible. And so this could be, I talk about something called a gimbal walk in a, in the book. And this is a Japanese practice that where people are checking in with employees and it's actually more than that. But for me, because the, the factory is so small, I, I just did it. Just before you and I started talking, and it wasn't complicated. I was just walking through the factory, talking with people. Some of the conversations were deep. One of our employees, his wife, just had a major surgery, and we were talking about that and how her recovery was going. Literally while he was standing there um, working, making chocolate. Another people, another another group of ladies who were packaging the chocolate that had worked with me for almost a decade, we were joking around. We were laughing. That's it. That's all we were doing. But yet there was an interaction between us as as human beings. And I believe that this is where we have the chance. This is where we have the chance to express our compassion, to express kindness, to listen, and to be present right then, to be present right in that moment. And that's what this is about. That's that is what I was writing about from what you just read.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I I had uh, I was journaling this morning and and I don't know why this thought came to me as almost serendipitous. I said, you know, when any platform is used solely for the purpose of individual gain, we waste a profound opportunity to change collective consciousness and ignite social movements that have the potential to move humanity forward. Whether that platform is a political position, a company, a job or a creative endeavor, we hold a great deal of power in our hands.
1: Oh, man! You wrote that yeah, it was hey. <laughs>
0: but it I think it it was you know reflective of the fact that uh of many of the conversations I've been having, especially you know when we you know talk to somebody like you who makes chocolate, but we spend twenty minutes talking about the the injustices of a criminal justice system that is clearly biased towards you know people of certain economic status.
1: Yes and, and 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 that's the the other thing I think too and, and that that is really core to what you just said what you wrote this morning is that not only do we we possess this power but we possess it regardless of our position in the workplace or I mean Victor Frankl talks about this in man's search for meaning I mean the greatest freedom that we have is in between the stimulus and the response and it is a it is a great freedom and i think that we sometimes we sometimes don't give ourselves enough credit because we think that our company isn't big enough or or we aren't big enough that our brand isn't recognizable enough that we don't have enough followers that we don't have enough of these things that we then minimize the ideas that we have and the power that we have because we, Also encapsulated in what you just said is the fact that this, the recognition of this power, no matter how small we may perceive it to be, that's where, that is true sustainability. That is true change. When we recognize that this can happen just within us, just our own heart transforming is really the true sustainable change in the world. I mean, Gandhi talked about it. I'm, and, and this is that's that's what this is. And, and we need to stop. I mean, you talk about this, that people need to have permission to to recognize the value of their own ideas that are awesome and not minimized because they don't have huge scaling opportunities. Yeah, that's what I hope people will remember about a lot of a lot of your work is centered on that I believe.
0: You know, it's interesting because this was a, the other quote I wanted to ask you about was, you know, so the danger is with scale we risk losing some of the benefits of our vocation, we tend to lose ourselves, we lose our connection and kinship under the intense focus of scale for sale's sake, scale for scale's sake and it's important to know that there's honor and validity in ideas that are not scalable. And at the same time what we do as a culture is we glorify the accomplishments of billionaires, we put their pictures on magazines And, you know, there is this almost, you know, sort of toxic drive to profit at all costs, but systemic consequences where we're seeing inequality like we've never seen it before. And I'm a business owner, so I I definitely, you know, believe in a lot of the tenets of capitalism, but I, I can't help but ask you. What your view are is on the sort of current state of the ec- economic situa- situation we're in, given all of this?
1: The, the problem is, and we can start at, you know we can, st- we can start with capitalism and then talking about the American economy and then we talk about the, the health and well-being of companies and employees that are working in those companies. But the, the bottom line is that we have been cultured, I mean we have been conditioned in this culture for decades, to measure the health of our companies and our country and other countries on GDP. So it's this, this mindset of, we are not going to be healthy without consumption and increased levels of consumption. That's it. Well, what comes from that is this, as you said, this almost toxic drive and recognition of scale. And investors want to know, they want to know: Will this scale? How quickly will it scale? What resources re, resources do you need to scale? Um, and for uh, because they want this ROI, you know, they they want they want this return. And then and then chambers of commerce want to know. I mean, we're seeing this happen now. Chambers of commerce want to know because it means more jobs. Your family wants to know because they think it means you'll be rich if you can scale. And so this pressure, pressure, pressure to grow and grow and grow is something that is it is very hard to resist. It is alluring in many ways. And of course, there are places where scale, uh, we must scale in terms of poverty alleviation and hunger alleviation, malaria, diseases, we, we, need, we need to scale solutions to that as quickly as possible. But what I'm talking about are these other things. And so what I think we're finding is that we are in, in our pursuit of scale we're losing our sense of humanity because of what you read that I wrote and it's it's hard to find yourself when you 're distanced from others and th- what we end up doing as entrepreneurs as founders, as CEOs w- really in, in any job well, I could I, this would apply and that is we grow, we scale the top line growth is big, the profits are big, and what we find we, we, we turn around and one day we realize that we have lost the thing that brought us to this place to begin with. We have become untethered to our vocation because we've become busy managing and writing checks and delegating. And pretty soon we've lost the human scale of our business that drew us to it in the first place, whatever it may be, practicing law, writing, making chocolate. It doesn't matter. It all, it's all, the, the application is the same for all of those. And so what I'm suggesting is that, People take a step back, take a deep breath and say, wait, what? I see the attraction here, but do I need to do this? And if I do this, how can I have a daily practice of reverse scale? That is, how can I turn this pyramid upside down and say, does this idea, this good idea, can I say that this has value if it only impacts one person? Or what if it just impacts me? Is it still worthy? Can I ascribe value to that? And in the process... Am I practicing reverse scale? That is, am I practicing holding on to this line, this tether, to the thing that brought me here to begin with? And is it worth sacrificing some growth and scale in order to keep it? And my, I say yes. And it's, it's, it's happened to me just so many times. And here's, here's what it looks like. When I practice reverse scale, it means that I didn't delegate somebody else to take students to Africa on this trip to Tanzania where it takes 60 hours to get there from door to door. I didn't and I don't delegate that to other people. And one day we're driving with the students. We have spent 60 hours getting to this place. Many of these students have never even been on an airplane before. They're very bright students. We're riding on this bus. It's dusty. They're tired because we've just come all this way, and we're on this little road near the village leading up to a school that we have this Chocolate University partnership with. There are a 1,000 kids in that school, many of them very hungry kids who we've tried to help alleviate in a school lunch program. They come come spilling out of the school down this little gravel drive, and our bus with – 20 people pulls up and all of these kids are singing this song in English. We are happy. We are happy to be together. Our people get off the bus, including me, and we're just enveloped in this this hospitality. And there wasn't a dry eye in the group, including me, including me. I've been all over the world. Why? Why is that? It's because we aren't built for that kind of hospitality. We couldn't take it. It was like this blanket coming over us and everybody was emotional about it and in that moment and in the moments that have followed when I've looked at that pictures of that scene I thought well that's what heaven's going to be like maybe I'll get off this little rickety bus called a coaster in Tanzania I'll get off and people will be singing a little song then then I realized no that's not what heaven's going to be like it was heaven and it doesn't matter your religion. I'm not proselytizing. I'm saying it was the divine. It was a moment of heaven, just a glimpse. And here's what it did. Because I didn't delegate that trip to somebody else, and I wanted to stay tethered to my vocation, I had a glimpse of my true self. That, that is the thing that points me back to my vocation. And so I was able to have this experience at work And I say to people, man, can you find a way to experience the divine at work? It's not going to be every day. I'm not talking about that. But can you have a, a life at work that you have the chance to experience this? And my point is that you I'm not saying you will lose the chance if you scale. What I'm saying is that the chance is less likely if you scale and don't. Remain true to yourself and don't keep that sense of human connection. And that's a practice because we're resisting. We're resisting our culture.
0: Wow. Uh, So I have two last questions for you. You, I know, probably made plenty of money as a criminal defense attorney from what I gathered from the book. You've built a successful business and you've also been up close uh, to poverty in a way that most of us will never see it. How has all of this informed your perspective on money and wealth?
1: The thing for me about money and wealth, and I now as a chocolate maker, I probably make about 15% of what I made as a lawyer. And that's been that way for a long time, but it's enough. And so the the way that this has informed my view of money and wealth, and I write about this, the title of the chapter is... How much is enough? That's, man, I have to ask myself that question every day. <laughs> I want stuff. I mean, I'm, I don't want a Gulfstream 4, but right. I mean, maybe, you know, just a citation would do. No, I'm just kidding. But, I, but I'm saying I want, I'm, I, I, I have a want, um, desire as well. But what I'm saying is, is that if we can have a practice of asking ourselves that simple question, how much is enough? It actually relates to the last thing that we were just talking about. It relates to scale because I can, if I can answer that question and I, I, and recognize that it's a moving target, then it's, then I'm going to be one step closer to what, to knowing what is sufficient. This comes straight from the Rule of Benedict, which has been governing monasteries around the world for 500 years, no, 1,500 years, I write about this. And because of my experience at the monastery, I'm able to overlay some of that Rule of Benedict on the practices that we have in our chocolate factory. And we're, I, we're not a monastery, but I love, the, I love that practice of, you know, the monks that brew beer brew enough beer, the monks that make fruitcake, they make enough fruitcake. And all of our definitions of, of enough are going to be different. But when we can come together and have some consensus in our companies about, well, is this enough? You know, is is this sufficient? Can we at least agree on this target? That's where that's where it's come for me. And so I have and I haven't answered the question. I'm still answering. You know how much is enough. But it, but it, but the point is, I'm asking the question. And then when I when I visit with farmers who who are so poor that you 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 that it's hard to describe, yet they love me and they care about me and they shower me with hospitality. Then I'm caught. I'm literally caught in this mystery of, of not trying to understand, but to recognize this imbalance of joy and sorrow and how it all fits together in this life. And that's where I want to be. And I want to be reminded of that as often as I possibly can about this mystery of joy and sorrow, how it relates to money and how it relates to my view of enough.
0: Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we close all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that
1: makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think what it is that makes someone unmistakable is the recognition and power that they can understand of their own brokenheartedness in their life, no matter how big or small they may perceive it to be, and understand that that their broken heart is what leads them to compassion, to kindness, and to goodness, and ultimately to love, which is what all of this is about. The entire conversation that we've had, and really, frankly, I think your work, I mean, we could boil it down to that. That's what it is.
0: Well, this has been absolutely amazing. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, your book, and also buy your chocolate?
1: Oh, thank you. Well, starting with chocolate, um, it's uh, at com. That's my last name.com. And uh, we're on social media channels Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And then I have, I'm on LinkedIn myself personally, Sean Askenosi. And then I have a blog at seanaskenosi.com. And uh, the book is Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling, and Feed Your Soul. And that's available in a lot of places and online as well.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring,
3: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl Branch